This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. The book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4 of Hebrews. Just reading one verse at this point. Hebrews chapter 4 and the very last verse, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A few weeks ago, I had to go to the orthoderm clinic in Hillsborough. I had a little procedure to get done on my nose. Thankfully, that went well. And just this past week, I went to the Lisburn Health Center to get my yearly MOT checkup. And I'm glad to report I was given a clean bill of health. Thank God for that. Amen. Sometimes I have to go to the office of my accountant. Uh, sometimes I have to go to the car dealership to get my car serviced, maybe to the solicitor's office or to the bank manager's office. Uh, in other words, what I'm saying is that in life, uh, when I'm in need of something, there's usually some place I can go to, usually. But for my deepest, most pressing, most urgent, most necessary, for my greatest needs, then I also have some place to go, and it's called here the throne of grace. Hallelujah. Thank you. The writer to the Hebrew Christians was stressing the absolute importance of this place of grace. And I'll show you specifically why in a moment regarding the Hebrew Christians. But this place of grace, this throne of grace, is for each and every single believer. And it's a wonderful place. In verse 16, it says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Boldly here means to come with confidence. To be able actually means just more than that. It means to be able to fully share our hearts. To be able to speak plainly about what's in our heart and what we think in our feelings and in our head. To be able to come before the Lord, not in an arrogant way or a superior way, but humbly and reverently, yet to be able to be, to speak clearly and to share with the Lord exactly what is on our heart. Uh, you know, God's got big, broad shoulders. And so we, we can't, we can't, it also can mean uh, to come and ask largely, to ask bigger than we can usually ask. John Newton said thou art coming to a king large petitions with thee bring Hallelujah. for thy grace and power as such none can ever ask too much and so we can come with absolute confidence boldly in, in a way that's plain so the Lord knows exactly what we're thinking and exactly what we're feeling he knows that anyway so why should we hide that why should we not come and just very clearly articulate when we can't exactly what we feel and what we're going through. It is a place of grace we come to. Uh, we don't come here because we have earned the right to come. 
We, we don't come to this place of grace because we have done ever so well and, and that we're really, really good. We come to this place of grace because it is by grace that we're saved through faith. Uh, we do not earn the right to come here, but we can come here because Christ has earned that for us and we come in his name. So whether we have failed, whether we have messed up, even we have sinned, we still, thank God, can come to this place of grace. Notice here that it says that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. If it wasn't for his mercy, we never could avail of his grace. It is often said that mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve and grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. But if God had have given us what we did deserve, then he could not give us what we don't deserve. We come and we obtain mercy and we find grace at this place. It says to obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. Are you in a time of need today? And what is your need? Whatever your need is, no matter what your need is, there's a place of grace to come to. And there you can find mercy and grace and help in your time of need. And because this place of grace is a throne of grace, that means it's a place of authority. It's a place of power. It's a place of unlimited possibilities. It's a place where he is able to do abundantly above all that you can even ask or think because it's a throne of grace. It's not a little footstool. It's a throne of grace. This is God's throne that we're coming to. So that should give us confidence to be able to come boldly. Let me take you back just for a few moments and explain the context and why the writer to the Hebrews is telling them about this place of grace. These Hebrew believers were second generation Christians. These were the ones who came to Christ through the witness and the testimony of those who had known Christ, the first generation of believers. But the first generation of believers truly felt that Christ's return was imminent. And they lived their lives in the light of that. And we talked about that just a few weeks ago when they would greet each other and say, Maranatha, the Lord's coming. But the Lord didn't come. And that generation's long gone. Now this is another generation. And not only that, they're, they're getting persecuted. Not just by the authorities, but by their own people. And so they've become discouraged, despondent, feeling a bit, what's happening? We thought the Lord, we were told all along, the Lord's coming, but he hasn't come. And now we're in trouble. People's coming against us, even our own people, the Jews, they hate us. You see, for this generation uh, to accept Christ as Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah, that really put them in direct conflict, even with their own families personally. Most of them would have been disowned by their family. In fact, some of their families would have held a funeral service as if they had literally died and were buried and gone. That's how bad it was. Uh, most of them had lost their jobs because Jews wouldn't employ them because they believed that Jesus of Nazareth was Messiah. 
If they were in business, most of them lost their businesses because they wouldn't trade with them. And so they were in trouble. They were in great difficulty. And remember, up to this point, all, all they had ever known before they accepted Christ, all they had ever known since they were children was Judaism. That's all they'd ever known. They knew the Old Testament law. They knew the law of Moses. They had all the, the rites and the rituals. They still had the temple. It was there. Every day they could see it in Jerusalem. It was there. They had the priesthood that was still officiating at all the sacrifices. They had the morning and evening sacrifices where the trumpets would be blown and there'd be a procession of priests going to the temple to make the sacrifices. They had all of that. That was still all in place. And all they had as followers of Jesus, all they could do was go to their own homes meet in their houses to break bread and to study the Word of God and, and maybe to get down to the river to get baptized. That's all they had. And so they were getting a bit despondent. They could see the high priest in all of his beautiful garments. They could see the processions. They knew exactly what was going on. They could see all that all the time. All they had was their faith in a Messiah that they could not see. That was not there. That was gone into heaven somewhere. And so now they're having to walk by faith and not by sight. The Jews were walking by sight, not by faith. But these couldn't do that any longer. The temple wouldn't be welcome to them any longer. They're despised. So many of them are finding their, their walk of faith being much, much more difficult now than it had ever been. And some had lost hope. Some had stopped going to church altogether, the writer says. In verse chapter 10 and verse 25, not forsaking the assemblings of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So some had just stopped meeting in their homes altogether. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because lots of them were wavering and so the writer to the Hebrews whoever he was uh, was fully aware of what they were going through and he says look hold fast don't waver keep your eyes on Christ there's a place of grace that you can go to you can't see it with your physical eyes it's not like the temple over there but it's real in fact it's more real and not only that, you've got a great high priest that is praying for you. And so we walk by faith and not by sight. But sometimes when you go through a period and things are not working out the way you had planned, the way your faith was hoping for and believing for, then there's a danger there's a danger that you get discouraged and despondent and there's a tendency to go back to the familiar, what you can feel, what you can see, what you can touch. There's a tendency to go back to living by our feelings rather than by our faith. And these Hebrew believers were missing the familiar. And it was starting for them to look like the former way was the best. I mean, at least the Jews had something solid, they had something concrete, it was visible, it was material. They had the temple, they had the law of Moses, they had the rites, they had the rituals, they had the priesthood, they had all of that. 
which now was only types and shadows, but Christ has fulfilled all of that. Now they have to walk by faith, not by sight. But now, under pressure, it looks as if the former way was maybe better because you could see that and you could feel that. It's something you could do. It's something you could touch. It was within your reach. Not this business of believing that you can't see. So what does the writer of this letter do? What is he trying to get across to them? That what they have in Christ is a million times better than what they had under the old system of the law. That's what he's trying to do. Even though they have to walk by faith, not by sight, but it's far, far, far better than what they had before. Verse, chapter 8, verse 6, there was a better covenant. 8, 6, better promises. Uh, chapter 10, better sacrifice. Seven nineteen, better hope. And he tells them that Jesus is better than Moses, better than Abraham. Better than Melchizedek, better than Aaron, better than Joshua, better than the angels. He's trying to show them everything you have is better than, is greater than. That's what he's trying to get through. In fact, the word better is used 13 times in this book. So he's basically saying that Christ's New Testament ministry is better than, greater than, far superior than that system of the Old Hallelujah. Testament. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. And we have got a place of grace that we can go to as believers. <clears throat> now, one of the chief things he wants them to know is that Jesus Christ is now our great high priest. That's what he wants them to know. And that's what he's trying to get so desperately across in much of this book of Hebrews. But this was a problem for the Hebrew believers. As I said a moment ago, they were brought up under Judaism. They knew all about the priesthood and who could be a priest and who couldn't be a priest. And under the Old Testament rules, as it were, the only one who could be a high priest would have to be of the lineage of Aaron, the original high priest. He'd have to be of the tribe of Levi. And if he wasn't, he couldn't be. But Jesus was of the lineage of David. He was of the tribe of Judah. And when Jesus was on the earth, he never functioned as a priest. He never went into the, he never wore priestly garments. He never went into the temple to officiate at any of the sacrifices. He never went behind that veil into the holiest of holies to sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat. He didn't do any of that. In fact, of anything, when he was on the earth, he acted as a prophet on behalf of the Father, telling and showing and explaining and demonstrating what the Father was like. But he wasn't a priest. And so this is difficult for them because the Jews have their high priest. They have their lineage. They have their heritage. But Jesus wasn't part of that. So how come we now can call him our great high priest? In fact, none of those high priests were called great only Jesus. And that's why he takes the trouble in chapter 7 and a little bit onwards to explain about Melchizedek. Melchizedek in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, the only two places where he's mentioned, Melchizedek, that mysterious priest that Abraham met, that Abraham gave tithes unto, 
who had no recorded lineage, no recorded death. It's as if he, he lived forever, as if. Yes, he was just an ordinary man, and he, yes, he had a birth, and he had a life, and he had a death, but because there's no lineage recorded, it's as if he didn't have that. So he becomes a type of Christ. And in, in Hebrews chapter 7, let me just read a little bit from the New Living Translation regarding Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem, also a priest of the Most High God, of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against many kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all that he had, won in the battle, and gave it to Melchizedek. His name means king of justice. He is also called king of peace because Salem means peace. There is no record of his father or his mother or any of his ancestors. No beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever resembling the son of God. I say again, he was just a man. He did have a beginning. He did have an end because it's not recorded, deliberately not recorded by the Holy Spirit so he could be a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider then how this great Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized how the great Melchizedek was by giving him a tenth of all that he had taken in battle. Now the priests who are descendants of Levi are commanded in the law of Moses to collect a tithe from all the people, even though they are their own relatives. But Melchizedek, who was not even related to Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham, and Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to bless is always greater than the person who is blessed. In the case of Jewish priests, tithes are paid to men who will die, but Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that Levi's descendants, the ones who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek through their ancestor Abraham. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's loins when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. And finally, if the priesthood of Levi could have achieved, could have achieved God's promises, and it was that priesthood in which the law was based, then God did. Then why did God need to send a different priest from the line of Melchizedek instead of from the line of Levi and Aaron? And when the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the one we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members do not serve at the altar. What I mean is this, our Lord came from the tribe of Judah, and Moses never mentioned Judah in connection with the priesthood. This change, the change in God's law, is even more evident from the fact that from a different priest who is like Melchizedek has now come. He became a priest not, meeting, not by meeting the old requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he said, you are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. And so the writer to the Hebrews is telling them, hey, Jesus it's not from the line of Levi or from the line of Aaron. That's okay because it's as if he's from the line of Melchizedek, that mysterious priest who had no beginning and no ending. He lived in the power of an endless life. That's what he's saying. In order to let them know that you have got a greater high priest because Aaron has died and all those high priests in his lineage who served died also, but Christ died and rose again and lives in the power of an endless life. Are you still with me yet? That's what he's trying to get, to show the importance of Jesus as their high priest, their great high priest, and he has got that throne of grace wherewith we can 
come and be blessed and find help in time of need. And so, going back to where we started here in Hebrews 4, it says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we've got to look then at what the therefore is there for. So we need to read verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Seeing that we have a great high priest. There was only three offices in the Old Testament, three great offices, prophet, priest, and king. And if you were a king, you couldn't stand the office of a prophet. If you were a prophet, you couldn't stand the office of a king. There were three separate offices. But we saw there that Melchizedek was not only just a priest, but he also was a king. If you're a priest, you couldn't be a king, but he could be. But Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. Yeah. And when he came to the earth, he came as it were, as it were, like a prophet to declare God to the people. But when he comes back again, he will come as a king, king of kings and lord of lords. Hallelujah. But right now, he is a great high priest. He's fulfilling that priestly ministry at the right hand of the Father, where he ever lives to make intercession for us. Amen. It says, who has passed through the heavens. The high priest in the Old Testament, the best he could do was to pass through that inner veil into the holiest of holies. And he could only do it one time a year. And he had to do it under the most careful instructions because if he didn't, he would die. And he'd have to make sacrifices. And there would be two goats. And one of the goats' blood would be shed and he'd have to take that in and sprinkle the blood of that before the mercy seat. The other goat, he would press his hands on <laughs> imputing the sins of the whole nation upon that goat and sending it out with, a, with, a, with a, a man who was ritually clean out into the wilderness that was the scapegoat and set off to be lost and gone forever. But he, the high priest, he didn't have a goat. He had a bullock, a great big bullock for his sins because his sins was greater because he had a greater position than anybody in the nation. So he had to kill a bullock to cover his sins before he could get in even and take the blood of the goat's sin. But Jesus didn't have to do that. He passed through the heavens and took his blood into the, right into the very throne room of God to where the mercy seat is, so to speak. He's passed through the heavens. It says, Jesus, the Son of God. He deliberately puts it that way. Jesus, that's his human name. It means Savior. This comes from where Joshua's name is. It means Savior. That's his human name. But then he's the Son of God. That's his deity. His humanity and his deity coming together, coalescing together. He becomes the God-man. 
And I'm glad that he wrote Jesus, the Son of God, because when he talks about his humanity, he's letting us know he knows exactly how we feel because he came in human flesh. He came as a man. God became a man for us. And so this is humanity, but the Son of God is his deity coming together as one. He's the only one that this could happen to to be our perfect intercessor. The one who could take the hand of fallen man and the hand of a pure God and bring the two together. See what this writer is trying to tell them, to show them what they have is far greater, far superior than anything they ever had before. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Do not let go of this, he said. You've got a great truth, he said. Do not let go of it. Church, we have got a great truth today. Amen. Do not let it slip. Hold fast to it. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in the world around you, we've got a great truth to hold on to. And we've got a place of grace that we can go to because our Savior is there. Jesus, the Son of God, is there. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Hallelujah. Ah. He goes at great pains again to tell them that the one that we go to understands perfectly what we feel and what we go through in life because he's been here and he's been through it. He's done it. That's what he's trying to tell us here. In 1 John 2.16, John talks about the three great temptations of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All of our temptations will emanate from one or all of those areas. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. When Eve was in the Garden of Eden, she was tempted by the lust of the eyes. She saw the tree was pleasant to the eyes. She was tempted with the lust of the flesh when she saw that the tree was good for food. And she was tempted with the pride of life when she saw that it was a tree desired to make one wise. So all of her temptations will come, or one or other, of all of those three areas. And the wilderness was when Jesus was being tempted by the devil, the same thing applies. He was tempted with the lust of the flesh when he was urged to command these stones to be made bread. Because it says afterwards he hungered after 40 days and 40 nights fasting. He was tempted with the lust of the eyes when Satan took him up to the high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, if you bow down, I'll give you all of those. Look, see them. All of that you'll have. He was tempted with the pride of life when Satan took him up to the pinnacle of a temple and told him to throw himself down because the very angels will swoop down and save you lest you dash your foot against the stone. What a spectacle that would have been. <laughs> what a way to, to launch your ministry in Jerusalem, throwing yourself off the temple. See, that appealed to the pride of life. Eve was attracted by sin. 
Jesus was repelled by it. Totally repelled by it. You see, the more holier one is, the more horrible sin is. And that's why we think less of sin than God does, because we're not as holy as he is. It repelled Jesus. And that's why it must have been a million times harder for him to take the sins of the world, the weight of it on him, because that which he hated and repelled against, but he had to take it on himself for our sakes, our sins. So who better to sympathize with us in our weaknesses than our Lord Jesus Christ, who faced all human temptation? Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Glory to God. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In Revelation 1.13, there's an image of Jesus standing amidst the seven lampstands of the seven churches. One like unto the Son of Man, it says, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Look at every bit, a great high priest. And clothed here, the tense of it means permanently clothed, permanently dressed. It's not just something that's passing. Jesus, our great high priest, is permanently clothed for that role. The Father conferred this role upon him in Hebrews chapter 5. I'll just read it very quickly for you. Verse 5 and 6. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, the Father, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he says in another place, You are, my, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this honor was bestowed upon him by the Father himself, that he would be a priest forever. And there would be a throne of grace for us to go to. In Revelation 1.13, this image of Christ standing with this beautiful garment guarded about the chest with a golden band. And it says that that went right down to his feet, all the way down to his, all the way down to his nail-scarred feet. <laughs> so if you looked all the way down, you'd come to those nail-scarred feet to remind us of the great price that he paid to be our great high priest. Down to the feet is Goderus, the only time that it's mentioned in the New Testament. But it's mentioned several times in the Old Testament in Exodus where it talks about the high priest garments. Down to the feet. And so all of this is to show these Hebrew believers and to show us today, 2,000 years later, he is still our great high priest. And there's still a place of grace that we can come to and come boldly to 
with confidence, knowing that he hears, knowing that he has gone through everything and feels. He's touched, the Bible says, with the feelings of our infirmities. He's touched. Jesus is actually literally touched with the feelings of our infirmities. When he was on earth, he was touched with the feelings of the infirmities of the people. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He was touched. He was wept greatly. He was touched deeply. He had feelings. And he loved to touch, didn't he? He touched the leper. Nobody else would touch that man with a 40-foot barge pole. Nobody touched him for years. And Jesus could have spoke the word and hated him, but he physically, literally touched him to identify with him because he was touched in his heart when he saw him. He, he touched Peter's mother-in-law when she was ill with a fever. He went in and he touched her. He touched her hand. He touched the blind man. He put mud on his eyes and one he spat and put it on his tongue. He touched. He loved to touch. He lifted little children up in his arms and he blessed them. He touched them. So what does that tell us? That we have got a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So therefore we can come to him with any, any issue, any problem, any need we have, we have a place, we have a throne of grace that we can come to. And so as we close, I see four things here. I see the place of grace, God's throne. I see the person of grace, God's son. I see the provision of grace, God's mercy. I see the promise of grace, God's word. Aren't you glad today that we have got a place of grace? <clears throat> what is your need today, right now? What is it? Say, Dave, it's a long-standing need. Or maybe it's something that's just relatively new to you. Or maybe it's an issue not personally for you, but the need is for somebody else, but you're touched with that need. You feel it every day. It's on your heart for that person. You see, all of those things we can bring to this place of grace today. So here's what I want you to do. We're going to break bread in a moment, but here's what I want you to do just before we do that. I want you just to quickly stand to your feet. Just where you are, just stand. Just take a moment and think of your need. You say, David, well, I'm doing really, really well. God has blessed me and I have, I have no physical need, I have no financial need. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just so blessed. Wonderful. Praise God for that. Thank God. But maybe there's somebody else in your heart that's not in that position today. And you feel for them. Maybe your need is physical, maybe it is financial, maybe it's relational. Maybe it's to do with your work, your job, your physical body. Any and every need you can bring this morning to this place of grace. Knowing that Christ is there waiting, listening. And you can be honest in your appeal to him. You can tell him, exactly what you feel, exactly what you're thinking. And even, even should it be that maybe there's a part of you disappointed 
You can tell the Lord that. He, he's got big shoulders. He can handle it. You can come to him. He can take it. And he can give you help in time of need. And so I'm going to pray a prayer. And I don't want you to pray my prayer, but you pray your own prayer in your heart. But be clear in it. Simple, but clear. Lord, this is my need. This is my heart. This is somebody else's need that I'm going to stand in for at this moment. So will you do that as I pray? You just pray your prayer. But just be honest with the Lord. Just be plain speaking. Come boldly with confidence that he will hear and that he will give you help in time of need. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are my great high priest. That right now you are seated at that place of grace, that throne of grace. A place of power, a place where we can find help in time of need. And so I come to you right now and I pour out my petition, my need, my request before you. Knowing that you will hear and that you will answer. And that you will give me the help that I need today to handle this, to deal with this, to go through this, or for that person I'm praying for, that they will be blessed. Lord, that they will receive your touch. So I give you thanks for this. And I thank you that you are such a wonderful high priest that you bid us come into your presence and bring a request before you and then give us the help that we need today. This we ask in that name that is above every name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk